You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem, bismillahir rahmanir rahim, in the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another episode of The Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. You're listening to myself, Samara and Osman Manan, and we will be with you all the way up until 9 o'clock. So if you do have any questions, any remarks, any comments that you'd like to make, please feel free to do so. The number for you, as always, is 0208-687-7878. And uh, of course, you can hit us up on our socials on Twitter and on Instagram as well so do make sure you you voice your opinion in any one of the topics that we are discussing today we are going to be speaking about three topics um, the first uh, segment which we'll be speaking about uh, up until the news uh, up, up until the eight o'clock news and that is addiction uh, is this a decision or not is it something that you can just simply uh, come out of uh, so if you if you have any um, thoughts on that or if you'd like to share your own opinion, then remember, like I said, this is your radio station and we'd love for you to get involved. So do pick up the phone and give us a call. 0608-687-7878. After the 8 o'clock news, we're going to be speaking about two more uh, more topics. The Cat Catches the Cool is the um, second segment for the day. And the STEM of knowledge um, uh, is what we're going to be talking about at the end of today's um, show. Uh, but before we get into uh, all of these main topics, of course, as y- if you are familiar with the breakfast show here on the Voice, Voice of Islam radio station, you'll know that we usually start our day um, with the weather and the the news updates as well. So we'll be getting into that, um, uh, and then we'll uh, we'll get into our main topics for the day as well. Um, uh, Osman, how are you doing today? Assalamualaikum. Um, I'm doing. I'm, I'm good. A little bit wet because of the rain. Yeah, the, okay. the, the weather's not been too kind, isn't it? Yeah, especially this morning. Was, I think there was a sudden, uh, there was a lot of rain, like suddenly. Yeah. Just <laughs> going to my car, I got drenched on the way. Oh. Um, and, and, but what's, what's the weather saying for the for, for the rest of England? And uh, not, not just for today, but the outlook uh, up until Saturday or so. So the today will start bright and breezy for many areas. Heavy showers will soon move in from the southwest across much of the UK. Northern Scotland and eastern England will see the best of the sunshine. And tonight, we'll continue to see heavy and blustery showers in western areas. Eastern areas will soon turn drier with clear spells. However, the odd shower may continue to drift in from the west. And tomorrow, we'll continue to see uh, blustery showers in the west. However, these will become confined to northwestern areas later having sunny spells for the southwest mainly dry and bright in the east and on thursday will uh, thursday will remain breezy particularly in the northwest er- where gales are likely there will be a few showers and some longer spells of rain for scotland on friday the north may have some heavy rain but it will uh, it will be largely dry in the south Saturday is expected to be a cloudy day with a few outbreaks of rain in northern areas. The south will be dry with plenty of sunshine. There's quite a mixture, you know, like mm. somewhere it's raining, then it's sunshine, then yeah. it's raining somewhere else, and the sunshine somewhere else. Yeah, but I mean, these days it, it is expected 
um, that it will be raining at some part of the day, isn't it? So it's good to have your your, your brolly with you, um, just in case, and maybe, maybe a, a rain raincoat as well, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, the newspaper headlines: So red alert for Earth, and uh, Prime Minister turns on the sham. Um, a number of Tuesday's papers lead with news from the COP27 climate summit in Egypt. The I quotes UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, um, Guterres as saying, um, and quote unquote, we are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. It also says Prime Minister Rishi Sunak tried to offer hope in his first major global appearance, telling the conference that climate change was an opportunity for clean growth. Barbadian Prime Minister Mia Motley warned that a failure to tackle climate change could create 1 billion refugees by 2050 and accuse rich nations of failing the developing world. According to The Guardian, Miss Motley said in a speech that the Industrial Revolution had been achieved at the expense of poor nations, but that they will also see the worst effects of climate change. That is fundamentally unfair, she said. The Mail leads with a call by UK-based charity War and Want for the UK to pay £1 trillion in compensation to poorer nations to help them deal with the impact of climate change. The headline reads, quote-unquote, just what planet are they on? Mr. Sunak turned on the sham at COP27 with a series of meetings with world leaders and a short but but upbeat speech, says the Metro. The paper describes the Prime Minister and French President Emmanuel Macron bounding up to each other for the first meeting in in Sharm el-Sheikh and carries a picture of the two embracing. Mm. The Express reports the talks between Britain and France uh, over how to stop migrant channel crossings are in their final stage and uh, that Mr. Sunak's, uh, Mr. Sunak is optimistic a deal can be reached. The Times report that the coming budget will see the government commit to increasing benefits, including the state pension, in line with inflation. The paper says that the pledge will cost £11 billion and will be intended to make sure the budget is seen as fair and compassionate. The Prime Minister is also poised to announce announce an energy security partnership with the US, says The Telegraph. The paper reports that the deal would see the US sell billions of cubic metres of liquefied natural gas to the UK over the coming year in order to avoid the need for blackouts. The Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, is planning a stealth rate on inheritance tax as part of the efforts to raise some £54 billion through tax rises and spending cuts. According to the Financial Times, the paper says the move will hit traditional Tory voters, but that the Chancellor and Prime Minister agreed that the wealthiest must pay more as they seek to shore up the nation's finances. The Mirror says that a 30-year-old mum who died from a rare eye cancer has been dissected for a Channel 4 show in a TV first. Um, the paper says that Tony Cruz, quote-unquote, bravely gifted her body to help fight the disease and that it is hoped the programme will educate millions on the science of cancer. Love Island star Oliver Atwood wanted to remain in the I'm a celebrity jungle but was forced to leave because of a medical issue. 
The Sun reports. The paper describes Miss Atwood as heartbroken and says her departure could mean comedians um, Sean Walsh and former Health Secretary Matt Hancock will join the show earlier than planned. Mm. And uh, the star says uh, that Scott uh, Mitchell, widower of Dame Barbara Windsor, has claimed the spirit of uh, the late TV star uh, visits him at the home that they shared. The paper quotes Mr. Mitchell saying, My skin tingles and I sense I am not alone. Then Barbara is right there by my side. Um, so as we can see, there's a uh, variety of uh, stories uh, leading today's uh, papers. The Time uh, says, uh, just a quick overview, the, the Time says Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is poised to increase pensions and benefits in line with inflation. A policy the uh, paper reports will cost around £11 billion. Um, £11 billion next year. It says no final decision has been made, but uh, that the move could mean deeper cuts to public spending elsewhere. According to the Financial Times, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt is planning a stealth raid on inheritance tax in the autumn statement, which he is due to deliver on 17th November. Mr Hunt and Mr Sunak are said to have agreed that the current freeze on the threshold above which people have to pay inheritance tax should be maintained for another two years. The Times and Daily Express both report that Britain and France are in the final stages of negotiating a deal to combat migrant crossings in the Channel. Under uh, There's a picture of uh, Mr Sunak embracing Fr- uh, French President Emmanuel Macron at the COP27 summit uh, on the BBC website as well. And the time. Uh, the Times says the £80 million agreement will see British immigration officials stationed in French control rooms. The Daily Telegraph reports that the government is set to announce a major deal that will see the United States supply Britain with billions of cubic metres of liquefied natural gas over the coming year. <clears throat> the paper says the move to import fossil fuels could open up Mr. Sunak uh, to a charge of hypocrisy, given that he urged world leaders at COP27 to live up to their promises to tackle climate change. Uh, last but not least, The Guardian leads with a blistering speech to the summit by Barbadian Prime Minister Mia Motley, in which she accused rich nations of failing developing um, countries on climate change. Miss Motley said the Industrial Revolution had been achieved at the expense of poorer nations and that the same nations were now being uh, uh, made to pay again as victims of climate breakdown. So these are the uh, um, the, 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 the headliners for today, for, for today's newspapers. Um, Usman, was there, was there anything uh, in particular that caught your eye or maybe some other articles from yeah, within the newspapers? There's some uh, very bad news, I would say, about um, <clears throat> which is about schools to cut staff and budget squeeze, uh, according to the National Association of Head Teachers. So uh, many schools are considering to, to cut, cut the um, uh, pay of the teachers and to even cut off teachers to reduce the number of the staff. And the government has already spent, uh, the government already increased school funding for 4 billion, they say, and uh, they can't squeeze out any more. Um, so teachers are very close to going on a strike again. This is also affecting school trips. And uh, overall, it, it will probably have a very bad effect on the children's 
mental health, which uh, apparently is already a problem arising. Um, apart from that, um, some schools have already told the BBC they might have to ask school trips and music lessons to avoid cutting staff as they struggle to pay teachers their 5% rise. And teachers are considering going on strike over the pay rise, uh, which, uh, which education unions say are far below inflation, but the government describes as the highest in a generation. The Department for Education said it understood the challenges caused by high inflation, adding that all schools could benefit from the energy bill relief scheme. And the core funding for schools had risen to $53.8 billion this year. So it's very, very, uh, very bad, very, very sad news that it has to affect our schools and yeah. teachers. Even though, uh, in my opinion, teaching should be something, should be a prestigious and a privileged job, and they should get more benefit and pay rises because mm. they are the future, you know. And uh, if uh, I, I don't think they give enough importance to teachers, mm. uh, even though this is where where the future starts. This is where you start. Teaching your children how to, uh, what the issues will be in the future. Most definitely, most definitely, and and, and schools are uh, such uh, uh, places where, of course, uh, children they they get molded, isn't it? I mean, the children are sponges, and they see, um, and they pick up everything uh, that that they notice and they see around them, and that's why it's so essential for them to have a healthy atmosphere, of course, in their household and within their schools as well, um, and that they they're not understaffed. And they have all the equipment that they need, and they have uh, uh, all the all the material that they need as well, so that they can teach the children properly. And um, whilst on the uh, topic of uh, of schools, uh, Zain Malik has uh, called on Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to give all children living in poverty a free school meal as the cost of living crisis continues. Um, in a letter. The former One Direction star says uh, he relied on free school lunches when growing up in Bradford and he adds he personally experienced stigma around food insecurity. He is backing a food foundation campaign with the charity estimating 800,000 children in England live in poverty but do not qualify for meals. Although Malik, uh, now known simply as Zayn, is not an ambassador for the charity, he said he felt compelled to write to the Prime Minister and to share his own experiences. He wrote, these children are suffering from lack of concentration, some even resorting to stealing food from school canteens because they are so hungry but, but can't afford to buy lunch. They are also feeling shame, which is directly impacting their physical and mental health. And he goes on to say that I know, that, uh, I know what that shame feels like. I have seen it firsthand as growing up in Bradford, I relied on free school meals. Uh, he is the latest famous name to support wider access to free school meals, joining England football star Marcus Rashford and cele- celebrity J- uh, chef uh, Jamie Oliver. And he hopes his letter convinces the government to include a free school meal for all children living in poverty as part of the autumn, autumn statement. And of course, it is something uh, which uh, which will benefit uh, uh, lots of people i mean even even in this we can see that 800,000 people uh, just here living in in england um are living in poverty but for for some reason they do not classify uh, or qualify even for for free meals 
Um, and so, of course, this will be a huge help. Um, and, and like he mentioned in his statement as well, um, children will resort to to, to stealing um, because uh, they don't have uh, enough money to buy food and they're too hungry to go, go without food. Um, and on top of that, they won't be able to concentrate within their classrooms as well. Um, and of course, the stigma which is attached to, to all of this as well. So, so the problems are manifold, um, and that's why it's so essential for us to actually tackle this um, in, in the best suitable way, isn't it? And that's why it's uh, it's it's up to um, the policymakers and it's up to those um, in authority to bring about such a change to to ensure that uh, the, uh, children who are going to school. Are, are healthy as well um, and they, 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 their nutrition is kept in mind as well. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think it's a bit of a hypocrisy. We always talk about our future, our children, and then you see these conditions in schools where mm. children have to choose you know, if, what they're going to eat. And when it, I think when it starts affecting our children, that's when you know that this is serious. And, uh, you know, parents... Uh, you, you as a father as well, you, you would do anything for your children, right? Money wouldn't be a, a issue ever for you. Money wouldn't be a question. Yeah. But here, when schools have to um, decide that these these people should get free school meals and these not, even though they 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 need it, but I think it, sh- it should be for everyone. It, sh- it should be part of the school uh, system, just as you get free books or you you borrow books from the library. In the same way, food is something. Food is, I think, more important than books. If you if you're hungry, you don't have a, um, you you're, you don't have a full stomach. You it'll be difficult to focus on your studies, anyways. Most well, certainly, most well, certainly. Well, apart from that, we have uh, another article about COP twenty seven, and why the latest UN climate conference matters so much. So tens of thousands of people will be jetting to an Egyptian holiday resort beside the Red Sea this weekend in an effort to tackle climate change. It sounds like a joke, but this latest UN Climate Summit, COP27, is reckoned to be the world's best hope of progress on the climate issue. Progress is certainly needed. The global effort to cut emissions is woefully inadequate and means the world is on track for catastrophe, the UN warned last week. But the meeting in Sharm el-Sheikh is shaping up to be a prickly and confrontational affair. The Egyptian hosts have set themselves th- uh, a tough challenge. Last year's UN climate conference in Glasgow delivered a host of pledges on emissions cuts, finance, uh, net zero, forest protection, and more. Egypt says their conference will be about implementing these pledges. What 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 that really means is it it will be all about cash and specifically getting wealthy nations to come good on their promises or finance uh, promises of finance to help the developing world tackle the climate change. So expect the main battle lines to be between the north and south, between rich and poor nations. Hmm. Um, and uh, in other news related to one of the topics I was speaking about as well, um, uh, addiction, which is actually the first topic, and we'll get we'll get into this straight after this article as well. Um, the the last uh, article that we wanted to go through was uh, in regards to um, um, e-cigarettes, and it's one of the most addictive uh, substances. Why has vaping? 
become so popular. So the global market for vapes has grown exponentially over the last decade and it's now estimated to be worth around £20 billion a year, up from just uh, over £2.5 million um, uh, pounds in 2016. Um, in the UK, there are now around 4.5 million regular vapors served uh, by nearly 3,000 specialist vape stores and a growing number of online retailers. But vapes are now available almost everywhere, from supermarkets to corner shops. Um, and um, the, the, the the origins of e-cigarettes can be traced back uh, almost a century from uh, from ads on buses to the branding plastered um, uh, over your local newsagent. Um, vapes are suddenly everywhere. And although the explosion in demand is relatively recent, the origin can uh, actually be traced almost uh, 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 back over uh, almost 100 years. So in 1927... New Yorker Joseph Robinson filed a patent for a device he called a mechanical butane ignition vaporizer. It was designed as a medical tool to enable people to inhale medical compounds. But although it's uh, generally regarded as the first electric vaporizer, it never really left the drawing board. The next stage in the evolution of the e-cigarette came in 1963 when another American, Herbert A. Gilbert, came up with a smokeless non-tobacco cigarette like its modern equivalent. It uh, used a battery to heat flavoured vapour, but it uh, didn't catch on. Uh, People weren't yet aware of the dangers of smoking tobacco and weren't really looking for an alternative. Um, and then, uh, of course, the, the first commercial uh, e-cigarette was invented by a smoker who wanted to quit. Um, and that's why uh, uh, it's been given so much uh, uh, importance and uh, publicity as well, because this is actually promoted as a smoking alternative by Public Health England. Um, and as we can see, health authorities in the UK are actively courting the vape industry in an effort to cut smoking rates. <coughs> Um, and this is why it's um, it's uh, it's g- grown so 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 popular as well. But uh, we can see that e-cigarettes may be healthier than smoking, but remain highly addictive. And lots of ex-smokers swear that vaping has helped them quit, um, and this has uh, has to be a good thing. Um, and um, there, there are a lot of people, or for instance, uh, John Dunn says that we already know that that the products, if you compare them to smoking, are far safer to use. Um, and he mm-hmm. goes on to say that, uh, in fact, Public Health England has looked at the evidence and has concluded that the r- products are at least 95% less harmful. However, none of uh, us know the long-term health effects of vaping and vape shop owner Sean is concerned that many people still underestimate just how addictive nicotine is. He gets a lot of people in their early 20s who have never smoked before coming in for vapes. Um, and uh, they, they, she goes on to say that we actually genuinely try to discourage them from buying um, and uh, also that we try to deter them, telling them it's one of the most addictive substances known to man. Um, and with that, we'll be going straight to our first main topic for the day. Uh, addiction. Is this a decision or not? Let us know what your thoughts are in the, uh, in this regard. Um, if you would like to, to get involved, remember the number for you, as always, is 208 and of course, you can hit us up on our social uh, our socials as well on Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. 
So the Princess of Wales <clears throat> recently released a video message addressing uh, addicts to destigmatize addiction uh, so as to encourage them to seek help. Uh, and she says that, I know this uh, was not a choice. Recovery is possible. Um, and this segment will uh, delve into the roots of addiction and how to come out of it, shedding some light on the Islamic perspective, uh, of course, uh, whilst doing so as well. Um but before we get into um, um, how uh, or, or what some of the common s- uh, symptoms of substance use disorder are and um, the science behind addiction and other such things as well, um, what types or, or examples of addiction uh, are there, Osman? Uh, well, addiction can be anything. For example, can be gambling, drugs, sex, social media, uh, maybe exercise, sports for some people, video games. But research suggests that addiction, addictions to substances work similarly to patterns of compulsive behavior, like gambling or shopping. Today, most experts recognize two types of addictions. One is the chemical addiction. This refers to addiction to an addiction that involves the use of substances, which, which could be drugs or medical use. And the second type of addiction is a behavior, uh, behavioral addiction. This refers to an addiction that involves compulsive behaviors. These are persistent, repeated behaviors that you carry out even though, even if they don't offer any real benefit, which is um, with video games or gambling or social media. This uh, So chemical addiction can be tricky to talk about because there's often confusion around what constitutes substance misuse, dependency and addiction. This is partly why the most recent edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders recommended using the term substance use disorder. This classification includes more diagnostic criteria to help healthcare professionals differentiate between mild, moderate and severe cases. And many experts also prefer it because it avoids the term like abuse, which can further stigmatize addiction and prevent people from seeking help. Mm-hmm. Um, common symptoms of uh, substance use disorder um, for, for the benefit of our, uh, our listeners include such things like craving intense uh, enough to, to, to affect your ability to think about other things, a need to use more of the substance to experience the same effects, unease or discomfort if you can't easily access the substance, risky substance uh, use like uh, driving or working whilst uh, using it, trouble managing work, school or household responsibilities because of substance uh, uh, use, Um, friendship or relationship difficulties related to substance use, spending less time on activities you used to enjoy, an inability to stop using the substance, withdrawal symptoms when you try to quit as well. Um, And there are some uh, disagreements around the concept of behavioral addictions and whether they truly involve addiction. However, the DSM-5 now recognizes two behavioral addictions, and these are gambling addiction and internet gaming disorder as well. So while most uh, medical experts... Um, agree that certain behavior patterns can become problematic over time, but there are still some uh, some debates uh, around the point when behaviors behaviors become addictions, 
and uh, specific behaviors that can become addictive as well. And as a result uh, to this, there's no official diagnostic criteria. However, general signs of a potential behavioral uh, addiction include things such as spending large amounts of time engaging in the behavior, urges to engage in the behavior, even if it uh, negatively affects daily life, responsibilities or relationships, using the behavior to manage unwanted emotions, hiding the behavior or lying to other people uh, about time spent on it, difficulty around uh, difficulty avoiding the behavior, irritability, restlessness, anxiety, depression or other withdrawal symptoms when attempting to quit and feeling compelled to continue the behavior even when it causes distress. So these are some of the uh, general signs of a potential behavioral uh, behavioral uh, addiction um, and what they include. Um, we'll be going uh, through some of the um, science behind uh, addiction and uh, the, the bio- biological, genetic factors, environmental factors, OCD, um, dopamine, etc. as well. Um, in just a short while. But before we do so, we do have with us on the line Dr. Zobia Elias. Uh, Dr. Elias has been working exclusively in the NHS in inner city London for the past 28 years. She has studied medicine and trained in psychiatry at the Royal London Hospital in Tower Hamlets. During this time, she carried out research into drug treatment of depression um, her emergent clinical interests were the psychological aspects of treatment and has worked as a consultant psychiatrist with South London and Maudsley NHS uh, Foundation Trust in Southwark. Uh, she's currently working in the Southwark Assertive Outreach Service uh, that has been set up to work intensively with the more complex and disengaging community patients. Uh, Dr. Elias is also involved in teaching undergraduate psych- uh, psychiatry at King's College of Medicine, uh, King's School of Medicine, uh, where she is an honorary senior clinical lecturer in psychiatry as well. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Wa alaikum salam. Nice to uh, be with you, and thank you for the introduction. Exactly. Thank you for, for, for being with us and joining us uh, here on the Voice of Islam radio station today. Um, we're speaking about addiction and whether or not this is a decision or not. And, 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 and just right off the bat, the first question that we wanted to ask you was, what's your personal opinion uh, regarding the article? Uh, right. So this is the article, um, I guess, the video message from Princess um, yes. Yes. Wales, Catherine. Yeah. And um, it, it's... Um, uh, it was a kind of unique message. I think the first of her messages as the Princess of Wales uh, in her new role. And I think um, it also coincided with um, uh, the start of um, uh, a program um, with one of the uh, charities that she's a patron for, um, which looks at tackling addictions and is part of the alcohol alcohol awareness week which which um um you know is currently um you know a, a kind of key uh, problem in this country i mean i i think she referred uh over the pandemic that alcohol problems had really escalated and mm-hmm. um you know there have been more alcohol deaths and millions of people um have been um uh you know who had Previously recovered from alcohol problems, 
had deteriorated again. Lots of people had taken up the addictions. And so I think her message was very, very succinct, actually. I thought it was a, a great message, and it was really around drumming home some of the kind of main important messages that we should all take home that addictions could affect any of us. The origins of the problems are not stuff that we can't relate to and empathize with. Uh, they shouldn't be shrouded in shame and taboo. We can't pretend it's just something happening to others and none of our business, and we don't not want to know about it, making it harder for those who with the problems to get the help they need. Uh, there is something you can do, and the problem can be resolved if we all stop turning a blind eye and do something. Um, somebody like the Royal Princess validating these points can be very influential. Mm -hmm. uh, she also highlighted the cases of uh, a couple of famous people, uh, deceased Amy Winehouse and Ant of Anton Deck, two very popular figures and role models. And these people can be key to changing public attitudes. Um, I always think a, a sort of perfect princess with little of their own shortcomings saying addictions are not an alien thing and can be unpicked and resolved holds much more weight than maybe you and I saying so. And she picks up key areas where attitudes could be different and more facilitating for addicts. Um, her interest also raises the profile of addictions services and all the professionals, um, both within governmental and non-governmental organizations who are trying to tackle these problems. Thank you. And uh, as a psychiatrist, uh, what, have, what have been your uh, main findings regarding this topic uh, through your practice? Well, th th there's no getting away from it. A, a large a proportion of people we see in secondary care are accompanied by a dual diagnosis of substances um, the kind of commonest scenarios are the impact on young people of taking substances they're not used to uh, in high vo or in high volumes at parties often causing confusion or psychosis. If they are unlucky, this can be chronic and disabling for life. We have a terrible problem in South London with cannabis and strong cannabis skunk triggering chronic psychotic illnesses in young people. Mm -hmm. Alcoholism is very common, often mixed up with severe anxiety and depression, less frequently with psychosis, but often triggering cognitive difficulties and dementia. These are areas where I guess we as professionals say the substances are causative and we're often met with the response that they are self-treatment and people tell us that they are relieving symptoms rather than causing this. And it may well be the case that substances are both causing and relieving, but they're, they're being causal is the problem. They're triggering, you were talking about the dopamine. This chemical called dopamine often aggravates psychosis. Um, but, but once again, there are other chemical changes which might give short-term intense relief as mood and anxiety symptoms. Um, but these symptoms often cause our patients most despair more than they can tolerate. Um, I've, and, you know, none of these problems are exclusive to non-Muslim communities. In fact, most of the people I have dealt with over the years have been from ethnic minorities and mm -hmm. a variety of religions. Um, I've got a few examples of um, more specific clusters um, in certain refugee populations, uh, Muslim populations, 
so when I worked in Tower Hamlets, um, we had a, um, a small ethnic minority of Somalian people who had actually fled um, civil war and observed huge atrocities. So these were young people at very high risk of psychotic illnesses, and they turned to a local drug called CAT, um, which is very um, like um, amphetamines in uh, the way it affects the brain. And we saw a, 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 a little peak of psychosis in this population, uh, often chronic and disabling psychosis. Um, and where I work more locally now in Southwark, we have a population of Iranian people. Some of these people fought in the Iran and Iraq war and were frontline mm -hmm. soldiers and suffered with post-traumatic stress disorder. And once again, um, their local substance was opium. And there are lots of people with opioid addictions who have a, you know, a primary diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. The other main group I see, the last group I'm going to talk about, are um, people, and these include people from Muslim populations, who've had um, more kind of um, uh, the, the, the trauma that we know of, uh, and these are things like uh, sexual abuse, childhood abuse, mm -hmm. um, you know, co coercion, failed marriages, and they often fall into using drugs and progress and accelerate quickly from softer to harder drugs, they get ostracized by their own network and turn to a, a drug-using network and end up in lots of social, financial, exploitative difficulties. Um, and these are the sort of poly-drug users. Often they are kind of enticed into stealing or sex working to fund their drug problems. Uh, this is a group I see a lot of in my own practice, dealing with very disengaging and um, um, complex patients. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, uh, the, the the point of discussion here is also to to speak about uh, how we can treat um, such individuals and such group uh, and clusters of people as well, isn't it? So just, just lastly, there, um, what what are your useful? Uh, what do you feel are useful initiatives and treatments that we have in place already um, to help those suffering from addiction? And what more can be uh, can be done also to improve the outcomes of, uh, for, for for the treatment? Yeah, so I think with addictions, one of the things that happens, uh, particularly in um, Muslim populations where, you know, there's an added taboo uh, for substance abuse, is that people get isolated and ostracized. And, um, you know, people um, disappear from their lives, leaving them very isolated and turning to networks like drug subcultures, which are very damaging and harmful, and people get enticed further and further into those problems. Um, there are very good separate drug services in this country. Um, and when I say separate, they're separate from the NHS now, and they provide education, drug substitutions, harm reduction programs, counselling to understand the root causes of the problems, detoxification and rehabilitation. And if you can access all of those, those are great. But for most people, they are quite disengaged and um, uh, they don't quite 
meet the criteria which are based on having insight and motivation. That's often what's lacking the most. Um, the kind of things we do in the health service level is we deal with people at the pre-treatment phase. We prep people to engage with the most these more specialist services. Um, one of the challenges, obviously, we now face is that these sit outside the NHS and uh, communication is often a challenge and also reconciling the more paternalistic and outreach approach we might take with a more office-based approach services might have. Um, uh, although, to be fair, a lot more are setting up outreach services. Uh, our first intervention is often one of observation and measurement of what is taking, what someone's taking, building up a picture of the pattern of use, determination of how much in control somebody is. Um, we look to deal, to look out to see whether there's any exploitation in dealing with this. We aim to deliver psychoeducation about harms and effects on the individual's mental health. Uh, we look at the whole picture and to feedback on how things like somebody's finances are being affected and the impact on maybe their tenancy um, from debts they've built up. Uh, we build up an understanding of why and then try and change attitudes and forge insight into the individual's problems and start holding their hand through mm -hmm. all the problems they may face as a drug user, trying to get their trust, offering emotional support, practical solutions, referring to agencies such as adult social care, uh, maybe for something like safeguarding if they're being exploited mm. or help with everyday living problems. Um, we try and involve the multidisciplinary team. And this may be a psychologist going out to you to help you with your insight or repair familial relationships that have broken down or an occupational therapist to introduce new day structure. Uh, we might do things like help you source some practical items you might need to help improve your quality of life. So, you know, our patients with very entrenched drug problems have very little money. Most of it's spent on drugs. Um, you know, going back to what an addiction it is, it's a, it's a drug problem that's out of control and, you know, it's overtaken somebody's life that, you know, all of their time and finances are directed at drug seeking, being with populations that use drugs and they've stopped living a normal life. They stop having possessions. They stop knowing how it feels to have things uh, around them. Hmm. Um, a real life example is um, uh, my team got involved with a woman who'd become very entrenched in drug using uh, networks um, and uh, all of her money was going on drugs. She was being abused in these networks. Um, and we got her a television and we got her an old television that she couldn't sell <laughs> and used to buy drugs. Yeah. And she managed to keep this, and this changed her life because instead of going out first in first thing in the morning looking for drugs, she had something else to do. Mm. Um, we helped her buy when her money came in, so she was on benefits at this point, had lost her job. Um, rather than her going straight to pay off drug dealers, we would stop her and say, hey, come and let's do some shopping first and get some food in. And she slowly sort of learned how much how much she had given up to indulge in her drug-using lifestyle. Um, 
we often help people with trying to secure their tenancies, very practical things. So, you know, if all your money is going to drug dealers, you're not able to sustain your rent. Um, doing something simple like recruiting family in to divert the rent money uh, to the right mm. place can keep a roof over your head. If you have a roof over your head, services are more likely to get in to find you and see you and talk to you. Um, there's another woman I know of with very serious problems who we have tried to give her an alternative day structure. So, so try and divert her into an alternative day structure. So, you know, we have offered her a weekly occupational therapy session where she has yoga and meditation. And initially, she missed 75% of those. But we mm -hmm. kept persisting and kept going to see her. And now she um, comes to 100% and uh -huh. tells us off if we're late. Mm -hmm. And that's put a break on her otherwise um, life, which is totally revolving around drug use. Yeah. And um, so we do these very practical things. Um, yeah, it's very good, very good to hear this personal personal connection you're building with <coughs> sorry with your with your patients as well and i think it's very important just like you mentioned to you know raise awareness and speak to people that's often the case uh that, that is often the 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 start you know well, where, where they start it. fixing you can you can probably hear that a lot of what we're doing is very simple stuff it's being with people holding their hand troubleshooting trying to keep some social stability trying to offer them an alternative and, you know, constantly, when we can, to hammer home the message of the dangers of addictions. And there may well be some positive uh, things, such as maybe a social network where you, your, your own has left you, or, um, you know, um, maybe some short-term relief from mental health symptoms. But um, the reality is that... Um, you know, what people really need is to stop being isolated and to be shown a way back and for somebody to, you know, use times when they are able to listen to you. And, and these people are often so engrossed um, that they don't want to hear that there's an alternative way. But somebody being there um, and talking to them and empathizing and helping with pro practical problems can often be the person that they then start trusting. And that's the main thing that happens when you do these things, yeah. that you start to develop a trusting relationship. Well, um, certainly. I mean, it, it is all about just uh, just being there, giving them a shoulder to absolutely. lean on. Um, and and just uh, just 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 helping and assisting in that way, isn't it, um, uh, Doctor Elias? Uh, you mentioned a, um, a, a, a great number of things uh, for the benefit of our listeners, for them to understand um, yes. what uh, uh, people are going through with addictions and how to overcome them as well. Um, and so, uh, thank you for that, uh, and uh, we wish you all the best for for the rest of the day as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for having this programme. You're welcome. And thank you for, for being with us. It was lovely speaking with you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call. That was Dr. Zorbia Elias, um, who has been working exclusively in the NHS in inner city London for the past 28 years. She has studied medicine and trained in psychiatry at the Royal London Hospital in Tower Hamlets. And during this time, she carried out research into drug treatment of depression. And he, her emergent clinical interests were the psychological aspects of treatment. Um, we spoke with Mrs. Kutba Al-Ghafri um, earlier as well, and we'll be listening to that interview now. 
now. Um, Kutwala Ghafri is a PhD student in King's College London. Her research focuses on the barriers and facilitators to accessing treatment facilities for people who use drugs and the social stigma they, fa- they face in Muslim communities and in Oman. She graduated with a master's degree in addiction sciences from King's College London in 2017, where her thesis was a systematic review and telephone delivered interventions for drug and alcohol treatment. Uh, Kutba's areas of interest is uh, on drug addiction, people who use injected drugs, um, women who use drugs and drug addiction in Muslim con- communities and stigma. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you and welcome to The Breakfast Show, Kutba. Wa alaikum as uh, Hi, thank you for having me. I'm really happy and excited <laughs> that I get to talk about this um, specifically to Muslim audience. Such a privilege. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you so much for joining us. That's all right. So, so let's get straight into the questions. Um, as a PhD student, how has your research experience been so far? Um, it's going well so far, actually. Um, I've just been in a conference last week uh, organized by the Society for the Study of Addiction. It was interesting to hear the latest studies done in the addiction field. And I have presented my work as a poster and ended up winning an award for it. So not bad, really. <laughs> Um, Yeah, and I am currently in the analysis phase of my thesis, and one of my studies is currently under review for publication in a scientific journal. So, yeah, exciting time. Wow, lovely, lovely. So would you kindly tell us a bit about what your main focus is in your research? Yeah, of course. So I am an international PhD student, actually. I'm from Oman. I'm in my fourth year uh, at King's College London. My main area of study is illicit drug use and specifically opioids. And my research focuses on the um, barriers and facilitators to accessing drug treatment services for people who use drugs. And this is from the perspective of the um, service providers, like the healthcare workers, and also from the perspective of the um, service users or the people who use drugs. And um, my thesis um, consists of three projects. The first one is a systematic review of the available studies on this topic. And my focus on this uh, uh, first project was on the Muslim countries and Muslim communities. And my other two projects are both qualitative studies where I had um, conducted focus groups and individual interviews uh, to service users. And the other one was to the service providers. And these two projects were conducted in my home country, Oman. Lovely. Thank you for sharing that with us. So you yeah. just mentioned that you um, focus on Muslim communities. Do you have any case scenarios, any findings you can share with our listeners? Any advice for them at all? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I would like to discuss the findings from this study. Um, because, you know, most research on drug use has been conducted in North America and Europe. And the prevalence of drug use in Muslim communities and Muslim countries is difficult to estimate, you know, because due to the religious, social and um, cultural prohibition towards drug use. And um, people from Muslim communities who use drugs choose to, you know, um, go away for treatment or to avoid, uh, not seek treatment, actually, just to avoid stigma and disclosing that their use of drugs in their own communities. So the aim of this study was to explore the perspective of both service users and providers on the barriers and facilitators to accessing inpatient and community-based drug treatment and harm reduction services 
for people who use drugs in Muslim communities. And um, after actually an intensive and systematic search for the studies to be included in this review, we ended up with 24 studies from nine Muslim countries, such as Iran, um, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Bangladesh, um, Egypt, Lebanon, uh, Kazakhstan, Emirates. And the findings had an overarching theme, actually, which was stigma, um, which in turn affected the psychological and organizational um, factors. Um, in terms of these, uh, the psychological uh, barriers and facilitators were, for example, um, individual disposition, like like a, a person would say, like deny the need for treatment. They would say that I don't need treatment, I don't have a problem. Uh, another psychological barrier would be the, uh, the the service users denying to disclose their drug use to not be identified as as a person or, or people who use drugs. Um, also, the, the negative attitude in the society that leads to the people who use drugs being excluded by the community, including their families. Although we had some cases where, as a facilitator, uh, some of the people who use drugs said that they had supportive friends and supportive families. But the uh, overarching um, theme of this was that they were excluded from the community. Um, also, in terms of uh, religion, like in Islam, uh, Islam considers people who use drugs um, sinners and overdose as suicide. So um, it, it is considered so that because of that, a lot of the people who use drugs in the Muslim community don't want to reveal that they use drugs. But as a, as a facilitator, we found from these studies, it said that in Islam, sinners are encouraged actually to go to the mosque, ask for help and support, and it's it does um, say that Islam supports harm reduction. And then finally, in the psychological barriers was that uh, for women who use drugs. Now, there's a big stigma, and even um, they, they are more stigmatized than men. Um, they lack the support and sometimes accused of being, you know, immoral. Um, mm. And as a facilitator in these uh, studies that we've, we've looked at, it was having an integrated women's services. And then in the, in the other hand, we had organizational barriers. So for example, a lot of the people who use drugs in these countries would say that the treatment is expensive, it's not cost effective, um, they had a bad experience, for example, with the, with the police, being caught with the police, with used needles, syringes, while trying to return them to the harm reduction services. Um, also lack of services in some areas, inflexible timings. Um, and some of the places they said that the staff themselves, the service providers themselves, had negative attitude towards them. And also the thing was the lack of awareness, lack uh, on available treatment services and, and you know, the transmissions of uh, the risk of transmission of infections. Um, so that that these were these were the findings, and to my surprise, or to our surprise in our team, we found that these findings were similar actually between Muslim and non-Muslim countries, such as stigma and um, the barrier that was truly unique to an Islamic view was the availability or absence of harm reduction services. So when we talk about harm reduction services, we're talking about, um, for example, providing clean syringes for people who use drugs. Um, for them to use. Um, nevertheless, in fact, Islam encourages harm reduction by the concepts of doing no harm to oneself or others 
and the uh, preservations of life. Um, and actually, Islam, uh, according to, the, to, to this study that we did, the finding was that Islam may or may not impact all these factors or all these barriers and facilitators to accessing treatment. Um, so, for example, some of the uh, factors that were impacted by Islam was a reflective of conservative Islamic views and the views on the availability or absence of harm reduction services, as I mentioned earlier, and the availability mm-hmm. of services, especially for women who use drugs. And then there are other things that were not impacted by Islam, really. They were more of policies, like governmental and organizational policies, like having to, to wait a long time to get the treatment or having expensive treatment. And now I would, I would like actually to take the opportunity of being on this show to reach out to the imams and sheikhs and the mosques to say that we know that, you know, religion plays a major factor in the foundation formation of Muslim. And reputation mm. is an important co- concept in the Muslim communities. Uh, these values affect how Muslims perceive drug use and may contribute to why people who use drugs are reluctant to access services. So an important recommendation from this study is the need to raise awareness about drug use in the community, especially in mosques. You know, Muslim people meet five times a day, you know, in the mosque and at least once a week uh, during the Friday prayers. So to reduce stigma, increase social support and motivate people who use drugs to ask for help to access treatment. You know, having having um, Islamic or mosque-based drug services for Muslim people who use drugs is also a way to improve access and retention to treatment and reintegration into the community. And there are a lot of um, studies that prove this. This is due to the spirituality and religion being considered protective factors, actually. Um, additionally, there is a need to increase the awareness of available drug use services for people who use drugs and their families. And I think that um, can happen in the mosques as well. Um, also, having educated and non-judgmental sisters in the mosque would encourage women who use drugs to ask help for from a fellow sister. Um, and finally, I think... Uh, to say this, there, there is an, a huge need for further research. It should be conducted in the Muslim world, addressing the issues of drug use. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to The Breakfast Show here on The Voice of Islam radio station. Just a quick time check for you. It is two minutes past eight on uh, Tuesday, the 8th of November, 2022. And we, before the news, we were just listening to an interview that we had with uh, Qutbah Al-Ghafri. Um, she is a PhD student in King's uh, College, London. Uh, her research focuses on the barriers and facilitators to accessing treatment facilities for people who use drugs and the social stigma they face in Muslim communities and uh, in particular in Oman. Um, She graduated with a master's degree in addiction sciences from uh, King's College London in 2017 where her thesis was a systematic review on telephone delivered interventions for drug and alcohol treatment. Kutba's areas of interest um, are in uh, uh, drug addiction, people who use and inject uh, drugs, women who use drugs, uh, drug addiction in Muslim communities and the stigma 
around all of this as well. Um, and if you are just tuning in um, after the eight o'clock news, the topic of, uh, that we've, we, we're addressing right now is addiction um, and whether or not this is a decision or not. Um, we're just going to be going through a little bit more in this regard and then we'll be moving on to our next segments for the day. Um, just quickly, the, uh, the Islamic uh, perspective um, on this. Uh, basically, of course, Islam teaches us uh, uh, that uh, moderation is absolutely key and Islam is a religion of moderation. However, when it comes to severe addictives, um, it takes uh, an abstinent uh, approach with the exception of medicinal purposes, of course. Um, and it says um, in this regard that uh, their harm is greater than their benefit. Um, though that is not all, when it comes to getting rid of an addiction, one must make sure the dispelled disadvantage is superseded by an advantage. Um, and it states in the Holy Quran, chapter 11, verse 15, surely good does away with evil. Furthermore, uh, prayer can be this very source of uh, pleasure that purges uh, the poison as well. Um, we see that the uh, promised Messiah upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he said uh, on one occasion that I see that when a drunk uh, an addict does not get pleasure, he keeps on drinking until a kind of intoxi- uh, into- uh, intoxication sets in. A sensible and wise uh, person can benefit from this, that he prays pers- uh, persistently and keeps on praying until he derives pleasure. And just as there is a craving in, in the mind of a drunk, the attaining of uh, which he is his only purpose, so should the sensible f- uh, person focus with his mind and all his faculties on the attainment of pleasure in prayer. Um, we can also see that uh, if uh, if we if we do have some sort of an addiction, we can fast as well, and this will uh, this can prevent and cure our addiction as well. Because uh, of course, during the the fast, um, you have to refrain from any sort of uh, um, uh, anything which uh, which uh, any consu- the consuming of anything uh, anything which goes inside the body. Um, and just lastly, before moving on uh, to the um, uh, the next segment, um, when a person becomes uh, addicted to drugs, then it becomes difficult for him to stop. Um, and uh, the Promised Messiah upon whom be peace uh, asks that, what are drugs? And he, he, he answers himself saying that on the one hand, they destroy life. And on the other hand, they are also sustenance for life as well. If a drug addict does not get a dose of the drug, then his condition can reach death. And this is recorded in the Malfuzat, in the sayings of the promised Messiah, upon whom be peace. Um, and and with that, uh, because we do have a lot of guests uh, to go through as well, we'll be going straight to the next uh, segment, The Cat Catches the Cool. Um, and this segment, we are going to ignore the fact that curiosity killed the cat, uh, since uh, we have so much to cover. Um, new studies have found that our pets will respond to uh, Hey Kitty Kitty, uh, for instance, um, when we tell, uh, they can tell that their owner is talking to them in their pet voice. Um, and uh, is this the case with strangers as well? So how much uh, of a role does tone play uh, is the question that we're asking in this uh, segment. And, um, and we'll, we'll also be exploring 
um, how uh, uh, our own pets, uh, our own cats, um, uh, um, um, are in in terms of uh, rivaling with other pets as well. But first, we'll be delving into the nine lives uh, humans and uh, cats have coexisted domestically as well. So, uh, Usman, if you can quickly go through. Um, the the overview of uh, overview of d- the domestication of cats, um, i.g. the Egyptians, um, and then we'll be going through um, uh, and speaking with our guests uh, and what they have to say about this as well. Yes, people began to domesticate cats in the Fertile Crescent about ten thousand years ago, according to DNA research. The cats likely started hanging around uh, farming communities in the Fertile Crescent about 8,000 years ago, where they settled into mutually beneficial relationship as humans rodent patrol. A second lineage consisting of African cats that dominated Egypt spread into the Mediterranean and most of the Old World beginning around um, 1500 BC. This Egyptian cat probably had behaviors that made it attractive to humans, such as sociability and tameness. The results suggested that prehistoric human populations probably probably began carrying their cats along ancient land and sea trade routes to control rodents. Modern-day cats descended from a subspecies of African wildcat, Felis sylvestris libica, which today is the most common and widespread wildcat. Cats are more independent than most of the other pets like dogs. A study comparing cat-human and dog-human relationship shows that human relationship with cats was was better than the relationship with their dogs due in large part to the, to the fact that uh, the perceived costs of the relationship with cats is less. Emotional closeness was greater with dogs than with cats Dogs help their owner exercise and allow them to appreciate nature more likely due to the demand for exercising dogs. But cats are great for small space apartments. Uh, the article shows that 10 out of the 16 cats reached uh, reacted when their owner called their name in a specific tone. When a stranger used this tone, the cats did not re- respond. The study shows that even though cats are independent, they still have a special relationship with humans. Mm. And cats are sensitive and communicative individuals. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, uh, over here we're seeing, like you just mentioned as well, 10 out of 16 cats reacted when their owner called their name in a specific tone. Um, and, and of course, this is for animals. This is for for pets and for for cats in particular. Mm-hmm. But there, there there are so many studies uh, done in regards to uh, children and babies. Uh, then we, that when we speak with them, we don't have to put on our so called baby voice. Uh, we kind <laughs> of speak to them normally, and they will yeah. still understand as if uh, we're speaking in that voice or in that tone. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's interesting, isn't it, to see the 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 difference over here as well. Um, we, we, there is a lot to cover, um, and we're going to be going straight to our first guest for this segment we do have with us on the line Dr. Joe Lewis um, Dr. Joe Lewis uh, um, is an award winning cat expert veterinary surgeon with over two decades of industry experience but most importantly a lifelong love of cats her passion for all things uh, feline led uh, Joe to, to, to found the cat vet through which she sings
single-handedly pioneered the UK's first home-visiting vet clinic devoted entirely to seeing cats in the comfort of their uh, their home. As the author of a book, What's My Cat Thinking?, uh, published by DK Penguin, Random House, uh, Joe believes that helping people uh, to understand cats is the key to giving them a happy, healthy life. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Hello, thank you very much, firstly, for having me on. I never miss an opportunity to talk about cats, which you'll probably discover as I go along. <laughs> you're, you're very welcome, and thank you for being with us. Um, the, the, the first question that we wanted to ask you was, what inspired you to pursue feline-related research, and how did your interest in cats spark? Well, I, I've always loved all creatures, really, um, mm-hmm. and I've always wanted to be a vet for as, for as long as I can remember as a little girl. Um, but it's cats that have got, I've just got this special soft spot for. I just adore them. Okay. Um, and I, I feel like I'm in my natural happy place, I think, when I'm working with them, probably um, because my first two siblings were cats, and I've kind of spent my whole life living with multiple cats ever oh. since. So um, I've rescued them from various situations and hand-raised kittens, so I've done the whole, whole lot, really. Um, so I suppose it's not really surprising that I've always been curious about cat behavior, I guess, and mm-hmm. um, I guess the why behind all those seemingly weird things that they do and they don't do, and... I think whether it's my own cats or the patients that I'm seeing in my clinic, it's just so important to to take that time and and understand how they see the world, how they think and feel, what they need and want from us, that sort of thing. Um, I think I've kind of been immersed in cat body language and behavior my whole life, and that's made me fine-tune my skills over the years. And Mm -hmm. being a trained scientist, of course, means that I'm all about challenging and evidencing all those experiences, the latest research. So... um, which seems to be coming thick and fast at the moment in the last decade with cats. Um, uh-huh. So it's become a hobby as much as a job for me, <laughs> keeping up with all the research. Nice. Um, so that, that's a kind of short story of why I got into this quite niche field. But um, it's kind of the motivation behind, as you touched on, my um, that leap of faith where I kind of set up my own clinic and did a weird thing of going to people's houses as the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's kind of that same passion for making the world a better place for cats that led me to get asked by the big publisher to write the book. So it's... Um, yeah, it makes it all worthwhile, though, when I get messages from people saying thanks very much and showing me cute photos of their cat with their copy and things like that. So, it's, um, yeah, it's all good. <laughs> nice. Thank you. And uh, what what is PDS, Pet Directed Speech, and uh, what can you tell us about about its research? Um, well, well, yeah, first, perhaps, for people that don't necessarily know exactly what Pet Directed Speech actually sounds like... Um, um, and I'm not going to do a dodgy demonstration over the, <laughs> the radio um, of what it sounds like, but it's safe to say it's, it's sort of similar to that kind of coochie-coo, high-pitched baby talk voice that some people use when they're talking to human infants. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the human behavior experts call it infant-directed speech, and obviously pet-directed speech is when we choose to do that to our oh. pets instead. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of, uh, they've got a few audible kind of features in common, the, the pet and the baby talk, um, it's that higher pitched um, and a pitch that f- fluctuates over a wider range of voice. Um, and there's a lot more variation in the voice. So it's got that sing-song kind of feel to it rather than that monotone voice that maybe you use when we speak to adults every day. Um, and it's sometimes um, quite slow and more clearly defined and shorter sentences and things like that. Um, and I think with, with pet-directed speech in particular, the one thing that sort of sets it apart from the infant, direct, human infant-directed speech is that um, it tends to be more social chit-chat when we're talking to our cats. Um, 
Whereas with young humans, it's often more educational and instructive because we're obviously hoping that they're going to learn our language, whatever that language might be. Um, so we tend to um, elongate our vowels and things like that when we're talking to infants, but that doesn't tend to happen when we're talking to our pets. Um, so that's sort of a bit about how it sounds. And then getting on to the second part of your question about the, the research side of things, um, it's really all about um, throwing all those preconceptions we might have about the way cats behave and um, interact with us and, and really hone in on exactly um, how humans communicate with um, our companion animals, whether they're cats or other animals, using our voice. So um, the stud studies tend to involve playing cats' recordings of human voices, um, so everyday speaking voices, and then that kitty talk voice, as I call it. Um, and it, it usually phrases the high-pitched ones like, um, do you want to play or do you want to treat, see you later, mm -hmm. um, how are you, those sorts of little phrases. Um, I think the recent French study that's come out that's um, sort of been in the, the press lately, um, they actually varied whether the cats heard their own human's voices or a complete stranger's voice. Um, and then they collected um, data from um, watching videos of, of cats' reactions behaviorally. And then they analyzed exactly how they changed their behavior in response to hearing each of the voices. Um, so it's kind of a cat expert job to know the sorts of behaviors that cats will show when something captures their attention. Um, yeah. So from that, you can then gauge whether those reactions um, uh, to those various voices showed that the cat seemed interested in them or not. Um, and so if anyone's listening out there with their cat, they might want to be able to recognize some of those behaviors um, next time that you're using a kitty talk voice. And if you don't already use one, maybe you want to conduct your own experiment at home and, and start using one just as a, um, a, a trial. But um, we, we tend to look at, because um, cat body language is very subtle, um, and that's often why they're kind of, we label them as being unfriendly or things because a lot of people are used to how dogs are sort of so expressive and effusive with their affection mm -hmm. um, but we tend to look at subtle body language like um, posture changes um, behavior changes like moving their ears or their head or their tail um, whether they're looking at uh, their human during the, the changes um, and if, if their eyes are changing like their pupils are very big and black or they're blinking um, whether they're grooming themselves, resting, um, or whether they've been moving around and suddenly they stop in their tracks, for instance, and sort of that freeze where they're kind of looking at um, and, and cat sort of trying to receive more information before they move again. Um, and just and vocalizing as well, that's another good one. Um, they, they actually can meow themselves and make a high-pitched noise. So mm -hmm, yeah. um, there are all sorts of things I go through in my book. So anyone who wants to kind of get a more visual um, and, and thorough understanding of them, um, that, that might be helpful. Yeah, no, no, definitely, definitely. I mean, uh, quite a few things to, to, to for, for cat owners, especially to look out for uh, in the body mm. language and other such things for the, for them to realize yeah. and understand um, yeah. what, what, how the, the cat is feeling as well. Yeah, it's complex. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, that's, uh, that was awesome. And thank you uh, for, for being with us, for answering our questions. And we'll probably see you at a, a cat cafe or something in, uh, here in London. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Dr. Lewis, uh, and we yeah, hope my, you have a wonderful pleasure. day ahead as well. Yeah, you too. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0208-687-7878 is the number for you. That was Dr. Joe Lewis, um, MRCVS, an award-winning CAT expert veterinary surgeon with over two decades of industry experience. Uh, but most lo- importantly, like we, we, we can see from that discussion as well, a lifelong love of cats. Um, and with that, we're going to be going straight to our next guest for the show. We do have with us on the line Dr. Dennis C. Turner, um, who is a former professor of anthrozoology. Anthrozo- 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 uh, and an animal assisted therapy and the former president of the International Association of Human and Animal Interaction Organizations, founding and former secretary of the International Social um, for Animal Assisted Therapy, ISAAT. He has also conducted research in Muslim and other countries uh, on attitudes towards cats and uh, dogs. Uh, Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Yes, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here today. And it's an honor to have you on, uh, on with us as well. Thank you. Um, we're speaking Speaking uh, about cats, uh, of course, um, and uh, the, 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 the the first question that we wanted to understand uh, from you was, what does the study tell us in regards to cat uh, ownership, uh, cat owner relationships? Well, it, it does tell me and it should tell everyone that learning plays a major role in the human-cat relationship because the cats learn to recognize their owner's voice. But I have to caution also that we've known a long time that cats react to higher-pitched voices than lower, more strongly than lower-pitched voices. And that's why women's voices are usually higher in frequency and they react more uh, differently to women than they do to men quite often. And that's part of the result here. But that's a learning process also, re- reacting to their owner's voice. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> as opposed to dogs, who are known as a, as a man's best friend, cats are mm-hmm. often deemed as independent. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, they definitely are independent. And mm-hmm. only when they want to cooperate do they cooperate. But if mm-hmm. the cat has been socialized to humans as a kitten, very on in its life, uh, they react usually positively to humans, and uh, and we're very happy about that, uh, that they do that. However, uh, it doesn't say, we have to say that the cat is often misinterpreted, her independence, as being yeah, almost like a, a witchcraft or something like mm. that. That is not the case. The cat is independent, yes, but if she wants to cooperate and wants to have be stroked, then she'll be there and sit on our laps for a long time. Um, and also, uh, Dr. Turner, along with uh, Alia Al-Hussein, the daughter of the late King Hussein of Jordan, uh, you have researched attitudes towards cats and dogs of different religious groups, isn't it? So w- w- what do other religions such as, let's say, uh, Christianity or Buddhism uh, tell us in regards to the treatment of, uh, of these animals? Well, uh, let me say also, of course, I'm from a Christian uh, nation or background, but my study, it was actually my study, and only one part of it was with uh, Her Royal Highness uh, Aliyah mm-hmm. al-Hussein, but I was very happy that we could do that. Uh, let me explain that I heard her speak in Brussels once, and she, uh, she was speaking about uh, animal protection in Islam and from the Quran. And everything she was saying, I had already found out by direct observations in Muslim countries. But mm-hmm. I, I did this study 
in uh, 12 and now 14 different countries with five different uh, world religions. And I first would like to start by saying on the question, cats are very likable animals, Muslims reacted most strongly and positively to this statement over uh, Buddhists, Christians, and uh, Hebrews. And on the question, do dogs are very likable animals. Mm -hmm. uh, be careful, Muslims are the least in favor of this uh, statement, but they still uh, agree with the statement that dogs are very likable animals. Now, when we look at the beliefs about uh, thinking and feelings of animals, Christians and Jews are the least um, uh, favorable uh, religious uh, religion people uh, that to support these statements. Um, least less so than Jew than Muslims or Hindus. Uh, so there is a difference, and that's our long tradition. Unfortunately, from the uh, Bible studies, uh, that man dominates over. Uh, animals and uh, the other religions are more positive in this respect. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, very interesting. Uh, thank you for that, uh, Dr. Dennis uh, Turner. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have uh, much time, uh, otherwise, we would have loved to have your take on this uh, even more. Uh, but thank you nonetheless, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Okay, you're very welcome. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Dr. Dennis C. Turner, who's a former professor of uh, anthropology. It's uh, I, I can't pronounce my words today properly. Uh, of anthropology, uh, anthropology, uh, an animal assisted therapy, and former president of the International Association of Human Animal Interaction Organizations, founding and former secretary of the International Society for Animal Assisted Therapy (ISAAT). Um, and we're going to be going straight to our next guest, the last guest for this segment, uh, Roger Tabor, um, who is a TV presenter, biologist, a behaviorist, feline specialist, naturalist and best-selling author as well. Most of his TV presenting has been on wildlife, plants and animals, yet he is known um, best known for his groundbreaking BBC TV Cats series, filmed over three years around the world as a biologist. He is recognized as one of the world's leading authorities on cats. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Good morning and thank you for, for being with us. Very um, welcome. In your long years of research, what has surprised you most about the behavior of, uh, of cats in particular? Oh, uh, good question. I guess it goes back to when I first started um, properly studying cats, which... Uh, would have been in the early 70s. Um, and at that time, very little, if virtually nothing, was known about uh, how cats behaved when they left our houses. Um, and also about wild species in the same sort of way, in the sense of what did they do with their territories, their ranges, what was the territory or range. Some work at that time had been carried out on tigers with uh, some radio collar work, and we were beginning to understand how those territories went, but nothing was known about house cats. Mm -hmm. So it was a great surprise to me when I found that it was exactly the same pattern that you were getting with house cats as you would for tigers um, or most of the other cats that we were beginning to develop an understanding of. Um, and in that, uh, the males will be going much further 
and females would have a much smaller area. So in an average London or Manchester back garden, for example, um, a female cat would wander around the garden and claim it as theirs and a little bit of the neighbours on either side, generally speaking. I mean, you will always get ones that do things differently. Um, but males would take a, a much larger area, on average about 10 times the, the area. So automatically they will wander over other people's gardens as well. And you begin to get a sort of pattern over the landscape as, as that develops. Um, but the thing that went with that was that how cautious are cats? And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about a tiger or a tabby cat. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at a dog when it's leaving your house and going into the outside world, it'll all be about, yes, charging out there. Um, and, and it'll be completely happy if you're there as well because it gains uh, confidence from its pack all of you going out there together Uh, wolves went as packs and we have our own mini pack when we go out with dogs with cats it's a different thing they instead of being a cog in the machine which really is how a dog society works or wolf society works as an individual animal um, the cat is the whole machine Mm-hmm. In other words, it doesn't live in a pack. It, it lives as an independent animal. It has to think about the outside world itself. So when it goes into the garden, it doesn't charge out. Mm-hmm. It goes cautiously. It sniffs mm-hmm. carefully. It will sit down and think and look around. Um, and that's all about survival. And you see the same caution with tigers. So, yes, it, it seems surprising that a tiger would be cautious with all its size <laughs> and ability. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, it could bump into another tiger, for example. So mm-hmm. always interpret where you're going as a cat because the slightest scratch could see you um, succumb because, you know, we take for granted now that you can run your cat round to the vet and have a, a, a jab of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. But historically, that was not possible. Thank you. And your famous BBC TV series, Cats, covers the history of the animals starting from their ancestors. Could you tell our listeners how the domestication of cats came to be, came about? Yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, and if I draw the same parallel between cats and dogs again, um, I mean, as, as you probably appreciate, in, in the Islamic world of the Middle East, Traditionally, cats are better liked than dogs because um, cats are very clean. They wash themselves and so on. So it's mm-hmm. it's rather like people before prayer, mm-hmm. um, whereas dogs are much more you know, sort of going in and around into anything mm-hmm. and, and get a, a less good press yeah, traditionally. Um, and that's based on reality because if you look in areas uh, where cats were domesticated, which is in the Middle East, um, what you'll find is that the ancestral forms of the cats were spread over the landscape very thinly. They were not in large numbers um, because they had to catch food. And to do that, um, they would have to travel quite a big area, particularly in arid landscapes. Um, Dogs became domesticated first from their ancestral wolves uh, because basically they would be following in the same sort of areas where early human hunters were going and they would overlap with each other, and gradually over time, um, a a sort of relationship developed, if you like. Um, But with cats, they waited until we were domesticated. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's a sort of inevitability. Once uh, you look at how the cat survived, they are good hunters, but because the prey was thinly spread around, you you couldn't change in the way that the dogs had. So 
what happened was once people had become domesticated, and by that I mean they started to make settlements, they started to live in villages, and there were wastes around, and the cats could come and scavenge that wild cat. And they could also uh, come after uh, near grain stores, for example, there will be more mice around. They could hunt after that. Mm -hmm. But they would still be very wary of people. People were strange things. So only the boldest or the more at ease with a disturbance uh, cats would come closer. And by that gradual selection of the ones that were more confident gradually coming closer to take advantage of this new food source, domestication gradually happened. It wasn't something that people magically put onto cats. It was something that, in effect, that the animal created by the circumstances. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, I mm. uh, never really uh, thought of it that way, but, uh, but <laughs> thank you. I mean, it's uh, a, a huge insight uh, into the, the, the difference uh, between cats and dogs as well um, and uh, it, it, a lot more information on the domestication of, uh, of cats over time as well. So thank you uh, for, 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 for that. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today, but we would love to have you on um, in the future again to, to speak about such topics uh, it was wonderful to hear from you. You're very welcome. And thank you for, for, for being with us. We hope you have a wonderful day. And you. Thank you. Bye-bye. 208 is the number for you to call. That was Roger Tabor, who's a TV presenter, biologist, behaviorist, feline specialist, uh, naturalist, and best-selling author as well. Uh, most of his TV presenting has been on wildlife, plants, and animals, um, and he's best known for his groundbreaking BBC t- TV series, Cats, um, which was filmed over three years around the world, sharing his thoughts with us. Just quickly, before moving on to our last segment, we are very short on time as well. Um, Islam teaches us um, that, uh, um, of course, animals uh, fall under that category of hakukali bad as well, the rights that we owe to mankind. And that's why it's so essential that we always uh, look after um, uh, animals as well. I'll just read out one uh, narration before moving on. Um, once the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that a, mus- a woman entered hell because of a cat that she tied up and did not feed it or let it loose uh, to eat uh, of the vermin of the earth uh, until it died. Um, and in conclusion, we can see that animals are living creatures uh, that Allah the Almighty has created and we uh, should be t- uh, treated kindly. Animals are in this world and um, um, are the creation of God as well. And so that's why it's uh, essential for us to look after um the, uh, the 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 animals that we see as well um with that we're going to be going to our last segment for the day uh, the stem of knowledge so the national stem or steam day is uh, today november the 8th um and it calls for full steam ahead um <laughs> uh, pun intended the day, the day inspires kids to explore and pursue their interests in science technology engineering art and math um hence this s t e a and that we can see from these topics inspired by the project MC Squared brand uh, created by uh, MGA Entertainment the Steam based uh, franchise um, uh, features four super smart girls who are part of a super secret spy organization called uh, NUV8 and that's of course uh, November the uh, 8th um, and uh, the the overview. I mean, um, can can you tell us a little bit about the this day, please, uh, Osman? Yeah. So the the day is an opportunity to focus on helping kids advance in the fields of science, technology, 
um, engineering, art and math, um, which which stands for the STEAM. Creating understanding around STEM and STEAM is a big topic of conversation today. Statistics show few American students pursue expertise in STEM fields, and we have an inadequate pipeline of teachers skilled in those subjects. On the flip side of that, the need for STEM-oriented job skills are skyrocketing. STEM or STEAM is all around us and shapes um, shapes our everyday experiences. Of the U.S. Labor Department's predicted um, 10 fastest-growing occupations, nearly all of them are STEM or STEAM careers. Therefore, an interest in STEAM early on can lead to success later in life. It's un uh, it's undebatable uh, that uh, these subjects push society forward, and uh, these programs help to find fun and, and engaging ways to teach them to students, which is all worth commemorating. Introducing kids as young as six or seven years old to STEAM can vastly improve their development in crucial areas, ranging from rational thinking to everyday social and emotional skills, stated Krishna Vedati, CEO and co-founder at Tanka, a learning system that uh, teaches kids to code. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we'll be speaking more about this and why it's so important for, for children to, to gain scientific knowledge um, and other such things as well, which are all related uh, with this. But first, we're going to be speaking with Professor Pete Goffrey, um, uh, who is a is a theme lead of the development, aging and disease at University College London's Institute of, uh, of, uh, of the Ophthalmology and the co-executive director of translation at UC Santa Barbara Center uh, for STEM Cell Biology and Engineering. He is the principal author and co-author of two landmark papers demonstrating the use of human cells to halt visual deterioration variation in um, uh, models of age-related uh, uh, macular uh, degeneration. And his uh, achievements uh, include the launch of the uh, London Project to Cure uh, Blindness. Um, Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and uh, welcome to The Breakfast Show. Uh, good morning and thank you for the invitation. You're welcome and thank you for being with us. Um, the first question that we wanted to ask was, what is a visual uh, uh, psychosisis and what, why did you choose that field of study as well? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> visual psychophysics is the study of how do we as people, are we able to actually view the world? What is it within the, the physics and the the stimuli within the world that enable us to actually perceive it. So how can we actually use those characteristics to be able to read and write, drive and recognize, you know, family and friends? Mm-hmm. Um, and in your uh, research, you talk about um, retinitis uh, pigmentosa, an age-related uh, macular degeneration, um, which are the leading uh, causes of blindness. Could, could you shed some light on, uh, uh, on your findings for the benefit of our listeners, please? So, yes, absolutely. So the biggest cause of blindness in the UK is a disease, and the name itself gives it away, um, a disease at the back of the eye called age-related uh, macular degeneration. And the macula is just a geographic area at the back of the eye, but it's essential for what we know as seeing. So it contains all the cells um, which are sensitive to light 
for the ability to recognize people and drive and read. So uh, age 65 plus, sadly, um, that process starts to deteriorate. So the macula and that geographical area, there's a degeneration in that area, which results in people unable to read. Um, and my research has been focused on a new paradigm within medicine, which is called regenerative medicine. Can we not only stop the progression and the uh, onslaught of the disease, but can we actually turn back time and actually restore that area or a particular organ to a point where it's no longer diseased? So can we actually regenerate that area? So my, my main area of research and interest has been using the technology of stem cells to be able to try and, try and stop the onset of a disease, but equally to try and restore someone's vision. And um, in 2015, we, we introduced a new therapy to try and, try and actually do that um, um, particular disease or help that particular disease by using stem cell technology. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, and, and just lastly, there is there any piece of advice uh, that you'd like to share with our young listeners who, who want to explore this uh, or even other STEM fields? Uh, absolutely. Um, I think even our new Prime Minister himself, Rushi Sunak, admitted that growth in our country is going to be dependent on innovation. And if I can, in one way, try and suggest that actually STEM mm. and um, young people going into science, biology, biomedicine, that would be a fantastic move both for the country but themselves in an area which is uh, in growth at the moment, which is these new paradigms and new medicines uh, to try and combat some of these unmet clinical needs. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you uh, for, for that, uh, uh, Professor Pete Coffey, uh, for, for being with us, for answering our questions uh, and sharing your, your insight uh, in regards to this uh, topic as well. We hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Thank Bye you. Bye now. Bye-bye. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call. That was uh, Professor Pete Coffey, um, uh, who is a theme lead of development, aging and disease at University College London's Institute of uh, Ophthalmology and the co-executive director of translation at UC Santa Barbara's Centre for Stem Cell Biology and Engineering. Um, we're going to be going straight to our next guest for the show. We have with us on the line Professor Martin Birchall, um, a professor of Larry Honorary Consultant, um, uh, Head and Neck Surgeon, um, Director NIHR, Incubator for Advanced Surgical Technology, Fellow for the Ac- uh, uh, Academy of Medical Sciences um, and NH- NIHR Senior Investigator as well. Assalamu peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Oh, hello. Morning. Good morning and thank you for, for being with us. Um, the first question that we wanted to ask you was, why did you choose to become a professor um, uh, in laryngology and what does your role involve? Yeah, no, thanks very much. So, um, broadly speaking, I'm an academic surgeon. So, um, about half my week is looking after people and, and doing operations and half the week is, is research. And uh, when I started off in surgery, I was very attracted to... 
um, head and neck surgery, which is the study of um, diseases affecting the, the throat and the way we breathe, the way we talk, the way we swallow. Um, I, I guess one of the reasons I was attracted to that was because it's these are all such human functions. They, you know, talking, swallowing, these really define us as, as human beings, both as in ourselves and socially. And when they go wrong, of course, that can be really devastating. So I, I spent the last 30 years since I began consulting just kind of um, trying to use the best of technology to make lives better for people who have those kind of problems. Thank you. And can you tell our listeners about the use of soft robotics and tissue engineering in your surgeries? No, sure. So um, along this journey, uh, you know, technology has moved on a lot in the last 20 years. Um, so I initially started out working with transplantation and then moved into some of the same areas that Pete Coffey's just been talking about, actually. Um, and and But more recently, because all of those other technologies couldn't give us the control over movement that you need for complex functions like talking and swallowing and breathing. Um, I've now started working with advanced robot scientists, working with soft robots, which can mimic the way that muscles move in the body. So a soft robot is, mm-hmm. is any material that will move in a way that you can predict when you put something through it, like either electricity or heat or light or temperature, or, or just small balloons, actually, that, that will move the way you want them, and therefore you can get movement. So, so that's why I started working with these very brilliant engineers now. Thank you. And what is the importance of studying and encouraging young people to study STEM subjects? Oh, it's absolutely fundamental. So there's, there's a kind of low-level answer to this, and there's a high-level answer. That, so the, the, the low-level answer is that you n- n- should be wanting and needing to know about the world around you. And even simple things like playing computer games or for just uh, understanding the way that scoring occurs in, in cricket or football mm-hmm. or other things, you, you need to understand a, a bit about the science of the way the world works and also mathematics particularly. And, and I'm, I'm very keen that as young people as possible start to learn about statistics. If you don't understand statistics, you cannot understand what the newspapers and the politicians are saying to you. And, and once you start to have a grasp of that, you can start to make sense of the world. So that's the low-level answer. The high-level answer is that the future of the world is critically dependent on two things, two skills that people need to have. One is an understanding of science and technology. And Mm. the young people growing up today will be the leaders in that. And the other side of it is empathy, is understanding humans. What we need is a future where people get the technology, but get how humans work, get how people, how your fellow man or woman ticks so that we can really make the world a better place. Awesome. Um, thank you for that, uh, Professor Martin, uh, for, for, for being with us, for answering our questions and sharing your insight into this uh, very interesting uh, topic. Um, and we hope uh, especially the younger generation who are listening to this um, find it uh, beneficial as well. Thank you once again. And we hope you have a wonderful no, day. Ahead. Thank you so much for asking me. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Bye bye.
0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call. That was Professor Martin Birchall, uh, Professor of Laryngology, uh, Honorary Consultant ENT, uh, Head and Neck Surgeon, uh, Director NIHR Incubator for Advanced Surgical Technology and Fellow of the Ac- Ac- Academy of Medical Sciences, sharing his thoughts with us. Um, uh, we're going to be going to our next guest for the show, Dr. Apira uh, Thiranova-Kurasu. Uh, Dr. Apira works as a biomedical engineer has been a part of the uh, Women in STEM Society and uh, would like to further promote STEM. Um, also a part of uh, Lap Journals, a group formed of three women uh, with different careers in STEM. The motive of uh, Thai group is to uh, uh, is to uh, encourage many young people to enter this field and know that there are many opportunities available for you to enter as well. Asami Kompis, we upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning, it's Sapir speaking, and I work as a biomedical engineer, as she's mentioned before. Um, thanks for inviting me to the Voice of Islam group um, to have you know, my, my voice put through, obviously. Um, yes, I'm ready to go ahead with the interview. You okay? Awesome. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome, and thank you for, for being with us. Um, could you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what your work involves and, and what or who inspired you to pursue a career in STEM as well? Oh, Okay. So, I don't know if a lot of people know what STEM is. So, STEM involves science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Um, my day-to-day task obviously involves um, servicing medical equipment. So, some medical equipment that I service are patient monitors, infusion pumps, ECG machines, and anesthetic machines, and many more. Um, obviously, you may not know most of them, but I can always help you at the end. Um, it's almost like an MOT in a car. So, we have to do this for patient as well as um, staff safety. Mm. During this process, we check the physical condition of the equipment and we perform functionality tests to make sure that everything is okay. Um, Also, during those checks, there may be a failure, which means that we would need to repair it. And on top of this um, servicing schedule, we've also got got, um, repair jobs. So for any faults that may have occurred during the day, while then you. Um, in terms of inspiration, I grew up in an environment where engineering was seen as a man's job. Um, and, you know, honestly, I wanted to prove that everyone can do this because everyone has their own quality. I mean, there's not, not such a difference on that. Yeah. And I also saw STEM as a platform for growth, um, as STEM involves a lot of recent researches and everything. Uh, could you also tell us something about the importance of STEM in this modern world? What is your opinion on that? Um, very important because it's a broad category, to be honest, and it involves a lot of jobs such as scientists, doctors, accountants, nurses, everything. Um, it's like innovation to make our planet better, of course. It helps us find cures for diseases and cutting technology to use in the field of medicine. And uh, lastly, currently the percentage of female graduates with core STEM degrees is just 26%. What can be done to encourage more young women to study STEM subjects? Let me be open. In the hospital I'm working at the moment, there are more females involved, honestly. Great to see that. Um, This actually depends on the country we live in. So in the UK, we are starting to establish more, having more societies to kind of promote this, and, you know, in 
certain countries, it's often historically seen that women are the ones who give up their um, careers and dreams to support their family. So gender inequality is still a thing in westernized country, of course, Mm -hmm. and we need to stop this. Um, So it's quite easy. Be supportive. Don't have career stereotypes. Um, Create internships to give girls insights of what a career in STEM is like. And I know in the UK we get offered scholarships and bursaries to support them financially, but maybe you know that's something that other countries could think about as well. Yeah, yeah, no, most certainly. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you. A, 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 a great deal of information shared, and we hope, uh, especially the, the 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 younger listeners out there uh, who are tuned in, uh, find this beneficial uh, and go into these uh, uh, these careers as well in, in, in within STEM. Um, so thank mm-hmm. you for that, and we we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That was uh, Doctor Apira Teranovakarasu, uh, as uh, who works as a biomedical engineer, has been part of the Women in STEM Society, and would like to further. Uh, she was further uh, promoting STEM as well. Um, also part of uh, Lab Journals, uh, which is a group formed of three women with different careers in STEM. Uh, and the motive of this group is to encourage many young people to enter this field, and know that there are many opportunities available for all of us to enter as well. Well, um, we spoke with Professor Judith Eason, um, who is a professor of biology in the University of Oregon uh, Institute of Neuroscience in Eugene, Oregon, uh, USA, where she studies uh, early development of the nervous system. She helped establish zebrafish uh, as an organism to study nervous system development to discover underlying principles that also apply to other animals, including humans. More recently, her laboratory uh, has focused on understanding how microbes resident in the gut influenced nervous system development um, and this is the discussion that we had with her yeah assalamu alaikum peace be with you and welcome to the breakfast show professor how are thank you doing you so much thank you for inviting me i'm doing very well it's lovely to have you joining us um so first of all could you start by telling us what inspired you to choose this field of study So I actually started out in college with an interest in anthropology and linguistics, which is very different than what I do now. But early on, I had to take a biology course, and I was actually surprised by how much I liked it. That's especially the case since I didn't like my science courses in high school. I really like discovering that it's possible to watch a biological process unfold and then to make a hypothesis about what's going on and then to actually test that hypothesis by doing experiments. So although I pivoted from my initial interest in human language and culture, the nervous system is really central to those biological processes. And so I became fascinated with the nervous system and wanted to understand how it develops. Wow, fascinating. Could you please tell our listeners more about your findings about what you just mentioned, early nervous system development? Sure. So the kinds of questions I'm interested in include understanding how cells learn that they're part of the nervous system, how they then learn what specific types of nerve cells they are supposed to become, and then how they elaborate all of the cellular machinery to actually become those nerve cells and form functional circuitry so that they can regulate an animal's behavior. These kinds of processes can be studied in lots of different animals, and it turns out that the processes are surprisingly similar among a lot of different animals. 
So I'm particularly interested in understanding these processes in vertebrates, that is animals like us, that have backbones. In the, in the 1970s, a colleague of mine pioneered the use of a small fish called the zebrafish to study vertebrate development. And then several other colleagues and I continued this work to make zebrafish an organism in which we could study nervous system development. The zebrafish is really great for these studies because the females lay eggs in the water where they're fertilized by males. So the entire developmental process unfolds in the water and it's accessible for study. And this, of course, is different than in an animal like us or an animal uh, like a mouse, which is another very popular experimental organism, where most of the early developmental processes happen while the embryo is inside the mother. And so they're much more difficult to study. Another um, thing about zebrafish that makes them really useful is that the embryos are transparent. And we've also figured out techniques to label individual uh, nerve cells with fluorescent dyes, so we can actually watch them develop in real time. So using some of these techniques, one of the things that we have um, looked at is how motor neurons, those are the nerve cells located in the spinal cord that make contact with muscle, um, how, how they do that. And of course, motor neurons have to uh, make contact with muscles that are appropriate for their function. So a motor neuron, for example, that's supposed to um, make contact with muscles in your finger so you can wiggle your finger. If it makes contact with muscles someplace else, you won't be able to wiggle your finger. When I started this work, we didn't know whether motor neurons grew directly to their appropriate muscles or whether they grew out in some way that was um, not to appropriate muscles, and then that got changed over time. But because we could actually watch the process in zebrafish because of the transparency of the embryo and our ability to label the cells with fluorescent dyes, we could actually see that the motor neurons grew right to the appropriate muscles as though they were following a chemical trail of some sort. And so then one of the things that we've done since that time is try to figure out what that chemical trail is and how it works. Oh, We've also, thank you. Right. So what possible avenues can be explored in this field of science? So there's still a great deal we don't know about how the nervous system develops. Um, there's, so there's a lot of work left to do understanding how neurons navigate to the right place, how neurons develop appropriately, and um, how, how they carry out all of their functions. And many of the things that cause neurons to do this normally are things that go wrong in various kinds of neurodevelopmental diseases. So there's the potential of these very basic kinds of studies, the kinds that we do in my laboratory, um, to reveal uh, possible therapies that could be used in the future for, for human neurodevelopmental disorders. Wow, thank you. Um, and Professor, lastly, do you have any advice for a young person who wants to pursue a career in STEM subjects, which a lot of our listeners would like to know? There's so many different kinds of career possibilities in STEM. They all require some basic knowledge, which means 
taking science courses, but I think it's really important to get involved in research as early as possible uh, to get an idea of what it's like to do research and to really learn how that um, develops your thinking process. A few things that I think people should think about, um, doing science is like putting together a puzzle or solving a mystery. It's often not a particularly, particularly linear path. So you don't want to get discouraged if things don't work out the way that you think. And, you know, we often learn much more from our failures than from our successes. I think it's also important to seek out mentors who can provide guidance and to encourage participation from a broad diversity of people who will bring different perspectives to solving a problem. And finally, maybe one of the most important things is that it's really, um, one should be really passionate and excited about what you're learning in STEM. And if you're not, then you might think about switching to some other area that does make you passionate and excited. Thank you very much for sharing your insight, Professor. It has been a pleasure. Sorry for a little hiccup. I hope you have a nice Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much, and you as well. That was our interview with Professor Judith Eason, uh, who's a professor of biology in the University of uh, Origin Institute of Neuroscience in Eugene, uh, USA, uh, where she studies early development of uh, the nervous system. Um, and with that, just one last thing that I'd like to share before finishing today's session, um, which is a prayer from the Holy Quran, chapter 20, verse 115. Oh, my Lord, increase me in knowledge. And Allah, of course, is the source of all knowledge and prophets are favoured with special knowledge from him and this is why we should always turn to him for anything that we need and that's it for today thank you for everyone involved here is the nine o'clock news